If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to keep this interdependent podcast alive and continue to explore so many topics and perspectives sidelined by mainstream media. So if you're moved and inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Dr. Craig Hetherington. And this is kind of the what I call the agrobiopolitical paradox at the center of the modern agricultural state, where you've got the same institutions doing both of these things in Paraguay, really trying to push hard to make everything possible to get more soybeans out there. And on the other hand, trying to create these institutions that are going to protect people from all the soybeans that the, you know, the left hand is putting in place. The author of The Government of Beans, Craig is a political anthropologist specializing in environment, infrastructure, and the bureaucratic state. His long-term ethnographic work in Paraguay chronicles how small farmers caught in a sweeping agrarian transition have experienced that country's halting transition to democracy, showing how activists create new ways of thinking and practicing government. Craig begins here by offering a glimpse into how he came to focus on Paraguay specifically and their agri-biopolitics. My sort of personal trajectory that brought me to Paraguay is not that interesting. It had come from traveling and in general kind of listlessness and not sure what I was doing with my life for a little bit before college. But for a bunch of reasons, I ended up spending some time there and this was in the late 1990s, I had the chance to encounter a campesino leader or a peasant leader who was living near to where I was. And I was completely inspired by the way this person talked. So they were living in a hut in the middle of the forest with no electricity at that point. And they, they would often invite me just to stay and to, to chat about things. And I had, I, I had actually been brought in there in order to do some environmental education at the local school. And I realized just in talking to this person how much of a fraud I felt at the time. On the one hand, because he knew so much more about anything that would be important to people nearby than I could possibly know as this 
foreign or intruding in the in the circumstance, but also because his understanding of what was important about environmentalism was so tied into a social struggle that was going on in the area that in my conception of the environment was sort of a completely separate issue. And so over the next decade or so, I had the chance to go back and try to find ways in order to interact with more people like him and, and ultimately wrote a PhD a dissertation based on almost two years of, of living with one of these groups that was, was struggling for land that didn't even have that much of an environmental component to the way I did the analysis. It was really about land struggles and about kind of space and colonialism. And when I finished that project, I really wanted to come back and kind of see how I could center that study of land politics and the relationship that these movements had with the government to see if I could center that in a series of environmental questions that have always that have sort of dogged me for for my entire life and that's how I came up with this this study that would really be about the agricultural changes that were happening in the area and the environmental consequences as well as the social consequences of those agrarian changes this may be based on your earlier research inquiries on looking at land struggles, but Guerrilla Auditors is your earlier book, which is an ethnography of land struggles in Paraguay and how rural thinking about property and information come into conflict with bureaucratic reform projects promoted by international experts. I'd love to preface the rest of our conversation with a brief historical backdrop here of this clash between rural and local communities in Paraguay and the types of bureaucratic reform and development that has been pushed and imposed on them by maybe more external forces. So what is important for us to understand here and how does it connect the local issues in Paraguay to the global forces that some of us may be more familiar with? I'll just preface the way that that study came about. I had been interested because I'd been directed in that direction to think about why people were losing land in this country that on the face of it, had a kind of commitment to land reform, had a commitment to the right to peasant families to have access to land. And yet they were having a great deal of difficulty getting access to to that land. And a lot of it was supposedly based, this is in the late 90s and early 2000s, a lot of it was supposedly based on kind of informal property rights and the difficulty that people had securing property rights in the context of widespread land reform. And so what I did was I, I had gone to, to live with a bunch of people who were sort of on the front lines of this struggle to find land for people who were landless. And the first thing that was just immediately striking to me was that even though the leaders of this movement were very often educated at you know barely high school level, their understanding of law and their, their ability to manipulate uh, legal and bureaucratic documents was incredibly high, and yet it didn't seem to be working in the same way that I had learned to understand what legal and bureaucratic documents were all about. And so that study really came out of a prolonged pedagogy for me of how if you're a landless person stuck in the tumble of land reform, how you learn to figure out what property is and how you learn to figure out what the state is, how you even learn to figure out what a, what a right is, and then try to use that kind of uh, knowledge to your, to your advantage. So this is what I called guerrilla auditors, were these people who were certainly not in any way trained to be lawyers or auditors, and yet who had this deep and intimate understanding of the way that state archives worked and state bureaucracy and so on. 
But as I kind of learned to to see things this way, I could then see how utterly strange it was to have these development experts coming in and saying, what people really need to know is to have more information about their land, or they need to have more information about how a property title works, that people were being squeezed out of land reform because of an inadequate amount of information. That was clearly and patently not the case. What it was rather was this kind of desire of this top-down experts to abstract all of what land was and to dole it out in these nice little units rather than understand that on the ground there were these minute and nuanced kinds of relationships, the true practitioners of which were really the local folks and their leadership. And to tie in agriculture, you talk about how the state has become involved in crop development and how various apparatuses have been set up to further the Green Revolution and to sustain and expand what otherwise could be understood as fragile, which is monocultural crops like soybeans. So what has this looked like in practice and what has been set in stone to facilitate this transformation of the land from what might better support local communities into something that ends up being extractive and really serving the interests of those who are outside of the place-based community? Yeah, so so the second study really what it what it did was to try to bring in this new agrarian transformation, which was a transformation uh, to be clear from from these relatively small holding export economies, usually uh, cotton and tobacco and a few other small export economies, towards massive soybean expansion. So taking these small holders and consolidating their farms into huge fields, sometimes 10, 50,000 hectares, and just uh, just growing a single crop of, of beans on top of them. This is a process of, of transformation that started in the, the mid to late 90s and really, really, really exploded this century. And so part of what was kind of frightening and illuminating about the previous study I had done in relation to what was happening with soybeans was the realization that this model of property in the in the land reform that I'd seen, this model that said, you know, all land is is basically the same thing. One hectare is equivalent to another hectare, and you can just map them out and distribute them in a way that is propitious for all. As much as that was a myth, that was the myth on which the kind of 90s land reform was was being carried out, was very similar to that which said, well, because all land is equal and because land is just creating value in a, in a fairly linear kind of way, there's nothing wrong with taking half of the country and covering it in a single plant and just trying to make as much as much money as you can on that on that single plant. So this kind of this this relationship between abstracting, so abstracting the complex local circumstances between that and this ability that the Green Revolution created to create more and more specialized single crops that could then take over large amounts of territory is the one that I really wanted to explore in this in this in this later one and to use that to get at what was always a problem with my with I felt with my first approach to the the Paraguayan rural problems which was about land distribution uh, everyone told me at the time it's not just about land distribution it's also about these invasive plants these these plants that are coming in and taking over the whole territory so it was it was about trying to work out that relationship hmm. And if we were to look at the soy industry particularly, 
you share that it's the unseen ways in which soy seeps into our everyday corporeal existence that are more difficult to reckon with. It makes any simple story about local actors and regulations seem almost impossibly quaint by multiplying the cast of characters ad infinitum, end quote. So with this, what is it really that has been driving the demand for soy in the global market? Because I don't believe most people go to the supermarket specifically to buy soybeans. So if our listeners were interested in connecting themselves to this story and these trends playing out, how would you illustrate this picture? Yeah, I mean, soy certainly isn't the only global commodity that's like this, but it's a particularly good example of something that we're constantly and all kind of enmeshed with in different kinds of ways, and yet usually without realizing it. So I actually, we had some edamame at my table the other day, and my my kids asked what it was, and I said soybeans, and they said, oh my gosh, this is what you've been going on about the whole time? And and of course, it isn't really. The the soy complex is something that grows out of, mostly out of post-war agriculture in in the United States. Of course, there's a very there's a very long tradition of eating soybeans that comes out of East Asia. But there's a certain moment in the 1950s when meat producers in the United States realize that if they force feed soybeans to their animals, even animals that do not like eating legumes normally, that they can fatten them and make them grow much faster because soybeans are, are very high in protein. And that's the basis for what becomes over the, the second half of the 20th century one of the most important crops. Uh, worldwide is basically this this bean that you crush down. Uh, very very little of it is eaten by humans as beans, but people crush it down. Part of the crushing goes to become high protein animal feed the world over, and the other part becomes oils and a bunch of industrial derivatives that are sort of all over our lives without us realizing it. And so so certainly the the big driver of soybean agriculture is meat consumption meat consumption out of feedlots and places like that. But the other is is the way, as with corn and as with a couple of other what people call flex crops, the, the huge amount of soybean oil that comes out of the crushing for feed means that people have found all these different complex industrial derivatives that one can one can use them with. So that's how we relate to soy on a daily basis, is either through consuming meat or through these things that we don't even realize are there. They're in our paint, they're in our glues, they're in, uh, they're in our preservatives, all those kinds of places. It was interesting for me to think about how, as you say, the same infrastructure used to support fragile monocultures are the ones that are then used to protect people's health from the harmful impacts of the agrochemicals necessary to sustain the monocultures that they propped up to begin with. So what might this tell us about the intentions and orientation of the state, because it seems like a scenario of problem creation and then problem solving rather than problem prevention in the first place in order to really support people's well-being, which is, of course, tied to the health of the land. Yeah, that's a that's a really nice way of putting it. So maybe I'll back up and just kind of explain one of the phrases that you've used a couple of times, the idea that monocultures are fragile. So the way the Green Revolution functions is that the Green Revolution is this kind of advance in agricultural science that we usually associate with the the immediate post-war period. So the same period that gave us this new kind of meat industry that depended on soy also gave us 
these new fabulous hybrid plants, which were created to do very, very specialized things. So if you were soybean, then you were then you're specialized to create particularly large beans and to grow at a uniform height. And if you're if you're wheat, then you you grow all that much more wheat. But these are these are kind of mutant plants, right? So by creating these new these new forms of plants, they may do something that's really useful for agriculture, create more food, for example, at the best of times. But then they also come with all sorts of vulnerabilities. And to the extent that people start growing them on larger and larger extensions of land, they become more and more vulnerable to the kinds of pests and and land degradation that comes with uh, growing the same thing over and over again. So when we talk about a monoculture like 3 million hectares of soybeans that are currently sitting over eastern Paraguay, you're actually talking about a very, very fragile biological assemblage of these plants that are all vulnerable to exactly the same thing. And when that, when those things come in, like uh, rust is one of them, rust comes in and it takes over the entire 3 million hectares of, of soybeans. And that can be absolutely devastating. So how do you, how do you react to it? Well, in a, in a more traditional agricultural system, by mixing things around, you, you disperse the vulnerabilities. But in a, in a monocultural system, you react to it by having better and better chemical solutions to these issues um, that come up. And so the flip side of that green revolution in creating these fancy new plants is creating a series of poisons and other kinds of technologies that are meant to kill off anything that might make that plant vulnerable. So thinking about the, the book really centers on thinking about monocrops in that way is these, these things that have one kind of life form at the center, but that are then kind of scaffolded by this incredibly violent technology of killing off all sorts of things that are classified as pests, but also things that are classified as just sort of in the way in a variety of ways in order to make that, that monoculture possible. And so, so two of the things that happen with, with this particular monoculture, but this is a common phenomenon, right, is that on the one hand, in order to get all that land that is then going to be cultivated by machinery, you have to get rid of first, a whole bunch of people, second, a whole bunch of the things that the people have, like the structures, then you have to get rid of the forest that your bulldozer can't go through. And you have to get rid of all these other these other things that are there. So it's an incredibly destructive imposition to begin with. And then you have to shower the whole thing sort of daily in these uh, this variety of toxic chemicals that keep it alive. So that necessarily is harmful to a whole bunch of people. And then and then if the state is supporting this, and it absolutely has in a country like Paraguay, where the where agriculture was most of the economy for most of the 20th century, the state is absolutely invested in these kinds of technologies, right? And yet the state presumably is also that instance to which we turn when there are widespread social harms. And so if those social harms are being created by the same apparatus, the state that has already, that has imposed this kind of agricultural model, then you end up with these, these public institutions that are doing double duties. On the one hand, they're handing out poisons to some farmers. And on the other hand, they're trying to protect those other farmers from those same poisons. And this is kind of the, what I call the agrobiopolitical paradox at the center of the modern agricultural state where you've got the same institutions doing both of these things in Paraguay, really trying to push hard to make everything possible to get more soybeans out there. And on the other hand, trying to create these institutions 
that are going to protect people from all the soybeans that the, you know, the left hand is putting in place. And what are the incentives for them? I mean, this is a pattern that I think we can recognize, not just in Paraguay, but elsewhere in other nation state countries as well. But what is the incentive for the government to invest in and to facilitate the development of this monoculture of soybeans? So if it's going to create a lot of problems, then there must be some sort of advantage that they're getting from supporting this. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is why it's not it's not easy to just say, well, I'm going to just shut it down, right? The soybeans at, at a particular moment while I was working on this book accounted for something like 27% of gross national income, right? So this is the the way that social programs are being funded is through the income generated by these kinds of industries. So uh, this is this is certainly true all over the place and it's why in other countries it's difficult to shut down coal mines and it's difficult to do all these kinds of things that we know in the aggregate are harmful but are nonetheless very very lucrative usually for a certain number of people so there's an inequality in the way that the wealth is is distributed but nonetheless becomes important to propping up any any kind of a government in a country like Paraguay which has been systematically marginalized for centuries from having other kinds of income, then the the country has become extremely dependent on its agricultural sector. And so when a boom comes along where there is cheap technology from elsewhere and there's a raging market for meat all over the world that's willing to buy up those soybeans everywhere, then then actually I think the the thing to to explain would be why wouldn't why wouldn't most of the government move in that direction, right? Why wouldn't the state really support that? So I, I think that's totally explainable. And it's also explainable in the sense that most of the people involved in this apparatus are not bad people, right? They are, they're trying to do what they think is best for them. They're trying to do what they think is best for their country and their community and all of these things. And they're totally uh, sincere in that. And, and it's not like there are a lot of other, other alternatives out there for generating the kind of the kind of income that one would need to to survive in these kinds of places. But in Paraguay again this is this is kind of a, a universal problem but in in Paraguay it may be particularly acute the social safety net and the taxation net was was very underdeveloped when this soy boom happened. And so the the inequality in the distribution of the resources that came in with the soybean boom was that much more acute and you could see it on the landscape and you could see it in the kinds of violence that allowed people to accumulate the land that they were accumulating or in the way that people were able to completely disregard environmental laws or health laws or labor laws because there really wasn't the infrastructure in place to make sure that people benefited equally from this boom. I've shared this before, but I've been thinking about how problem creation and then problem solving is always more profitable than preventing the problem in the first place. And then also problem creation and then attempting to solve those problems by only addressing the symptoms using commercialized solutions rather than getting to the heart of the crises to create more sets of problems that require another set of solutions that might be commodified as well. That endless chain is still going to be more profitable than just getting to the heart of the issues and addressing that. So in the global picture, when we have this dominant economy that is centered or based on endless economic growth, then it orients us towards 
many problems <laughs> um, and solutions that don't necessarily get to the heart of the issues. So this is, again, another pattern that I've been seeing across different issues that we've talked about on the show. And there's a quote that you share that I want to highlight here, which is that capital seeks to simplify biological production, end quote. I would love for you to expand on this statement. And also, I wonder if there's a pattern here that we can recognize in the broader global context in terms of the real impacts of this model of export-led agriculture and export-led growth. And so we're talking about soy here being what has been capitalized off of. And in response, there have been, as you share, anti-soy activists. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether it's soy and like the what or if it's really the how and the export model itself that really disempowers local communities and leads to a homogenization of the landscape in order to feed the desires of capital in the global market. Yeah, no, I think that's both of those takes on what I'm getting at here is, are, are very astute. So first of all, that idea that problem creation and problem solving are a way of generating profit, I think is exactly what's happening here. And, and I also think that that there's a there's a way in which capital. I, I don't necessarily want to b- put a big capital C on that, but the way that the export market has come to dominate places like this has been based on a model of simplification and amplification. So one one of the ways that this happens is precisely through this kind of scaling up that soybeans make possible. One of the things that soybeans are so desirable for is that you can grow them on 10,000 hectares. There's not, not every plant allows you to do that. So the fact that you can grow them on 10,000 hectares means that you have less labor costs, means you have less other kinds of costs associated with growing them. And the bigger and bigger you can make it, the more of the product you can fit into the hold of a boat in order to ship it somewhere. Beans are really good for that too. All of those things make soybeans very amenable to a model that is always wanting bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I talk about that kind of seeking to simplify biological production, you sort of need to simplify in order to be able to upscale in that way. You need to be able to have these things that are easily measurable and that aren't going to get too complex in their relationships with uh, with other things to, to, to scale in that way. Now, I, I guess the other... The, the, the flip side of it is, and you started to allude to this with, the, with talking about activists, is that it's not always clear how you intervene in a system like this, right? And, and the, the story that I tell in the book is actually mostly focused on bureaucrats who are trying to shift the way that the system is working to make it, more, to make it less harmful, right? Um, not just about creating these sort of band-aid solutions, in that way, but actually trying to get at the root causes of why uh, this structure has this particular momentum in, in one kind of direction. And it's really about how incredibly difficult, if not impossible, that project was for these people. And I, I want to underline that just because I think it's, in some ways, it feels like it's easy to point to the place where the problem is, And then there's this kind of assumption that there's a place where the problem isn't, or there's a place from which one could intervene. And yet the the incredible difficulty of that is what makes this story one, you know, kind of like the story of carbon. One of those things where the attempt to change it is almost always as much wrapped up in the problem itself as it is something that's going to shift it in some other direction. 
Right. And to add another layer to the challenge that people are having to confront, you've shared in passing before that soy lobbyists have been exerting their influence over the scientific community. And peeling back the layers to look at what is behind the curtains is so critical because it helps us to calibrate the information that we then receive from the legitimized sources that we learn from. For example, in the dominant Western culture, lessons from the scientific community and from scientific research are often very highly valued and prioritized as the reference in policymaking. And this is, of course, not to detract from this form of knowledge at all, but it is important for us to understand the institutional biases that affect what types of knowledges and research are invested in and then ultimately published and produced. So can you elaborate more on what this has looked like in terms of maybe legitimizing a scientific justification for this destructive model of agriculture for soybeans? Yeah, I think uh, no, it's really important. So one of the one of the ways that science plays out in this in this story, again through a whole bunch of well-meaning people who often enter into the scientific side of this in order to try to ameliorate the problem, is that they find themselves in a kind of paradigm of knowledge creation that very easily moves in the same direction as the monocrop rather than against it. So one of the things that agricultural science is really good at is breaking things down into their components and figuring out which components are vulnerable to what, and then seeing how you can deal with those vulnerabilities on an abstract kind of, in an abstract way, right? So knowing that this particular plant is vulnerable to this particular caterpillar and that that caterpillar is vulnerable to this toxin means that you can come up with a scientific solution to that kind of that kind of issue. And Western science has been extremely, extremely good at that. It's where we get the green revolution as we know it. But then what happens is that people start to use those same tools to think about the harms that are being caused by something like 3 million hectares of soybeans, you start to realize the limits of what that kind of science can tell you. So you can start to break down, well, there's erosion, right? There's an erosion problem, and then you can try to fix the erosion problem. Or there's a problem, like I said, with something like rust, and then you can you can throw on chemicals to try to, to try to deal with that. But how can you deal with the fact that well, there's all these communities that no longer feel comfortable using the roads in order to get to the local clinic because the roads have been completely chewed up by soybean farmers and because there's pesticides wafting into those roads. Like what kind of a social farm is that? And what help do we get from agrarian science? Well, we don't very much, but you just have to visit these places and everyone knows perfectly well that there's something kind of off kilter about the relationship between really wealthy farmers and their massive machines and their pla- their pallets full of poisons uh, versus these people who are just being cut off from their roads and their schools and things like that, right? And And agrarian science doesn't have much to say to that. And yet the whole regulatory apparatus is kind of kind of moves us towards asking questions in that vein. Well, what can we do so that so that this one little thing isn't happen? The, the same the same thing is true of the courts. So I spend a bit of time in the book talking about uh, the way that people have tried to adjudicate pesticide poisonings, which are sometimes the most kind of extreme or noticeable harms that come from this kind of agriculture. 
Well, very often, even something like a pesticide poisoning in a court of law is extremely difficult to prove because the just the relationships involved in why a particular toxin might have affected a particular body in a particular way are incredibly complex, right? And, and when the scientists and the lawyers can't quite come to an agreement on something, then we just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, it's inconclusive, so forget about it. And that, that kind of way of thinking is really unhelpful for figuring out how to better how to better live in the world, basically, which is what it comes down to, which I think is also also comes back to your your thing about you create problems and then you solve problems. That's that's better than just trying to live better to begin with. But that that does seem to be the the sort of takeaway from the way these regulatory apparatuses keep kind of tripping over themselves and recreating the same kind of knowledge, which is almost invariably helpful for monocrops rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that certainly speaks to the limitations of having a myopic lens as opposed to taking a step back to look at everything with a more holistic view and across disciplines as well. So definitely an important lesson there. And this touches again on what we discussed earlier in terms of problem creation and then problem solving. But at the heart of your message is this paradox of how local ecosystems and communities are being destroyed in order to improve social welfare based on economic growth, for example. And again, this appears to be a pattern across the world, whether it's done in the name of economic growth or job creation or addressing hunger and so forth. How have your research inquiries challenged the dominant ideas of how social welfare and life quality are even measured and understood? And how do we make sense of this paradox that life is being destroyed and then simplified in order to improve these metrics supposedly indicating a community's quality of living and wealth? Yeah, that's a really big question. And it's one that I, you know, even after the book came out is one that I struggle with. So I think the main thing that I wanted to take away from this is that forms of life, however we want to construe that, and I tend to construe it as communities of different kinds of creatures that thrive together, forms of life are always in some way destructive. And it's worth being really clear about that when we try to get into the morality of some forms of life being better than others. You know, every time we Every time we cultivate something, we are taking away the possibility of something else to grow in that particular spot, even if you know we're doing it in the most uh, holistic sort of a way. So I wanted to start from that that basis to think, okay, if every if every form of life that we choose to support or to allow to thrive comes at the expense of some other one, then then we can sort of interrogate the large scale programs that have been put out with often with the best intentions for thinking about new forms of life. So one of the ones that I focus on quite a bit in the book is this notion of welfare, which comes out the welfare state as it first sort of emerges in uh, in Europe and North America and then is imposed via various kinds of development programs on some other countries. This notion of the welfare state is a model of life, right? It's a model of life that says that people ought to be supported in their capacity to thrive to a certain extent. And a lot of the folks that this is sort of one of the the ironies that I alluded to earlier, a lot of the folks that I'm talking about now being displaced by soybeans were beneficiaries of that model of life, that model of welfare. And so this is why I wanted to be really clear about the fact that that did come with a cost. It came with a cost 
This was a redistribution of land and a creation of a certain kind of cash economy for people who had previously been excluded from the cash economy, nonetheless came at the expense of, the, of a lot of forests and came at the expense of a lot of indigenous territories. So what does that tell us about this moment in which there is an expansion of what we call welfare that nonetheless rides on so much destruction? And is there a relationship between that and the current justifications of the soybean economy, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. Why do it? Well, we do it because it creates so much income. But then what are the costs of that kind of income? What are the costs of someone who says, well, we can't expand the healthcare system without having a bigger tax base, which from a from a kind of myopic, as you said, a view of things is absolutely true. We can't make better schools unless we have a better tax base. Where are we going to get the tax base if our main industries are soybeans? Well, we're going to put it into, into soybeans. And I think that calculus is something that I, I certainly don't say that I can resolve, but it's one that I wanted to uh, to kind of put front of mind when people think about these relationships between development, welfare, and something like agriculture, where the destructiveness of welfare becomes so obvious. And if there are goods in there that one wishes to be able to to think with or one wishes to be able to allow them to thrive, then then how do we how do we square that with the kind of um, the kind of death that's also meted out along the way? And is there a different way to think about what that relationship or that equation might be? Again, I don't have the answer to that, but I think it it points to I think the word holistic that you've been using a bit is is a useful one, like a, a larger way of understanding how these systems come into being. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. And there are no easy answers. Just it's it's not a simple problem that has one root, because at this point it's so embedded across everything within our society that there are n- not going to be easy answers. So we just have to sit with these difficult questions. And in terms of the approaches that people have taken to resist the devastation caused by the soy industry, you've looked at how some activists have chosen the path of capturing political power in order to be in a position to enact change from that top-down method. What difficult questions have you seen people needing to confront when taking this approach to change-making? And also, what are the limitations, as in, what are the constraints of the system itself or how does the system even change people once they begin to master and then play by its rules and incentives? Yeah, so this this really gets at the crux of what was so troubling for me about this this book. And and just maybe to personalize it a little bit, like when I started this project, it was really 2009 and something had just happened in Paraguay that was really enormously hopeful for people like me. So someone who considers themselves kind of environmentalist and um, on the left and was a supporter of a whole bunch of social movements in Paraguay in a country that had been dominated not only by single industries, but by a dictatorial political system for you know two centuries at that point. In 2008, against all odds, they managed to elect a very small coalition of activists into the presidency of the uh, of the republic and a lot of the people who kind of acceded to a uh, higher office in that moment were people i knew really well and people who i considered uh, and still consider myself to be kind of allied with in the way that i think about these kinds of situations so 
you can imagine, particularly in a, in a country where that has been dominated by dictatorial politics for an awful long time, that uh, this was an incredibly hopeful moment. And yet over the next couple of years, without discounting some of the really amazing things that people did during that time, I'd say much more than that, people found themselves to be kind of ground down by this system that was larger than themselves, which forced them to ask questions in particular ways and largely made it impossible to to touch more structurally at the issues that they were that they were concerned with. So I think it's a real question. The people who spent all this time building up, for example, that institution of the state that's meant to regulate pesticides, if ultimately that institution is the same institution that allows for the importation of large numbers of pesticides in order to grow the soy industry, then what exactly was the what exactly did they accomplish after four years when they were turfed out of office and taken over by a rabble of, of far right wing soybean supporters? It's not clear, right? Uh, likely the main impact was just to increase the capacity of the state to continue imagining crops at that kind of scale. And so a lot of people coming out of that, including myself, coming out of that experience once they were thrown out of office, um, a lot of the reflections was really well. Thinking at that scale, thinking at the scale of the state is really part of the problem. And then maybe ultimately what we ought to be doing is thinking at a much smaller scale about the kinds of thriving that one can that one can try to support in particular kinds of situations without getting into those kinds of knowledge creation that we talked about before that, uh, that allows this kind of scaling up of everything. Maybe the, the scale is part of the problem. And since a lot of this can be heavy to offer some inspirations. What are some stories of resilience you've heard from local communities at the grassroots level in regards to how they have confronted and even thrived amidst the impact of the invasion of the soy industry taking over? Yeah, well, I think for anyone who reads this book, they should know that I I finished writing it at a moment of a real deep pessimism among most folks that I knew in Paraguay. It felt like a really dark time after everyone was turfed from office. But I, I can say afterwards that, you know, life continues as normal and people are amazingly able to to do great things, even in the, the kind of margins of totally destructive industries. So I've seen these, um, there's a, there's a group it's been around for quite some time now called Konamuri, which is a group of indigenous and peasant women who've come together and created a number of very small scale organic industries around uh, around Paraguay. Some of them um, export uh, yerba mate is one of the one of the products there. There have been some seed exchange institutions that have come up where people have really tried to think more about how to relate to um, more indigenous products in Paraguay without having to go through um, standard markets. And there's a lot of just personal stories of people who have kind of disconnected from the desire to change things at a large scale and have instead reconnected on their plots, in their farms, with new ways of carrying on. So I think all of that is kind of what um, what keeps me thinking that that, you know, you can't you can't beat people down for very long, um, and I do hope. Unfortunately, the the pandemic has sort of restricted my ability to uh, to continue this research. But but that would be the ultimate goal for the next project is really to kind of track down these sorts of communities and often just individuals who are thinking differently about agriculture and how to how to move it forward. 
What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow? Yeah, well, in the in the last year, I've read a lot of really amazing books, but the one that comes immediately to mind is this book called "Pollution as Colonialism" by Max Liboiron, who is a Métis scholar based in Newfoundland right now, and they are one of the people who. Uh, is just bringing a brilliant, I think,、uh, an original voice to the question of what's the relationship between knowledge creation, decolonialization, and、um, and environmental destruction. And I've I've now gone through that book twice. I just、uh, I, I think there's so much coming out of this、uh, this scholar right now. What are some mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? Yeah, this is this will probably sound pretty cheesy, but I do think you know.、Uh, again, in a in a pandemic moment where I'm feeling my、uh, my life is somewhat restricted, I always find it useful to remind myself to ask to what extent what I'm doing in a given day or a given week or a given lifetime,、uh, how much those things are fostering the thriving of living beings in relation to each other, and and if they're not doing that, then. Then what is it that I'm doing exactly with my time here on Earth? And、uh, and so I think that that notion that everything we do is somehow connected to the thriving of communities is、uh, is the thing that that I try to keep reminding myself of. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? Well, I, I started talking about these small communities of of farmers who kind of weathered the the impact of the soy boom and have now are now thriving in its margins. I would include alongside those this kind of new generation of young scholars in Latin America, and particularly Paraguay. There's this great efflorescence of scholarship. That what I find particularly inspiring about it is that it's starting in a moment where thinking environmentally is really thinking in terms of environmental justice.、And、I don't think that was the case in the '90s when I was studying. I always found it difficult to. To kind of put my environmental justice question, my 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 social justice questions together with my environmental questions, and now I see folks coming out of Latin American universities for whom those are absolutely and constantly intertwined with one another,、um, and I I love that, and I can't wait for the next decade of scholarship coming out of this new、uh, group of people. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but we have been talking about Craig's book, "The Government of Beans," which we will link to in our show notes. And you can also follow Craig on Twitter at Crether and on Facebook at Craig Hetherington, which again we'll also link to in our show notes. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and leaving us with so much to dig deeper into and think about. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You know, I'm not sure I have any wisdom, and I'll just say this from a perspective of someone who 
uh, has lived an incredibly privileged life. And sometimes I think it's, it's best for me to just step aside and say, Institutions like this, the Green Dreamers, is is great. I, I love the the kind of the kinds of voices and conversations you're bringing to everybody, and I uh, I look forward to hearing more from you and from all the listeners here. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep this show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also really appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with your friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Debt by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Dono. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 